Well, one of the things that I'm going to lean on, we've used in a number of our materials, but it's also turned out to be probably one of our most popular presentations. There are many people that regard it uniquely effective. And what we're going to try to do tonight is to measure how many believe the Bible is the Word of God. How many believe that Jesus is the Messiah? The question now, the test question is why? Why do we commit our lives around that truth? How do we know it's not just a tradition, not just a contrivance? Uh, just well, How do we know that? And putting it another way, uh, Lord Kelvin, William Thompson, who was knighted and, and goes by the name of Lord Kelvin, uh, he pointed out that until we can measure something, we really know very little about it. So is it possible for us to somehow get our arms around how sure are we that he is the Messiah? We speak glibly of Jesus being the Messiah of Israel. We speak of Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and so forth. How sure can we be of that? How, how do we know that we're not just the result of some traditions or some circumstances or what have you? And that's what we're going to be dealing with here. Now, the epistemology is the study of knowledge, its scope and limits. Epistemology is really the question that Pilate asked. It. He said, what is truth? He said it rhetorically, perhaps cynically. What's our epistemological approach? Well, one of the first things we focus on as we study the Bible, we have these 66 books written by over 40 guys over a period of approximately 2,000 years that it has integrity of design. That's not trivial when you realize that we're talking about a work product produced by 40 guys who didn't even know each other over a period of several thousand years. And we discover that this package of, of uh, messages evidences deliberate design. In fact, as we study it more carefully, we discover that every detail in that package is there deliberately. It evidences his design. And the second discovery, that's the first discovery we each have to make for ourselves. But the second discovery that comes out of that is that origin of that design had to come from extraterrestrial sources outside space-time. Why? Because it anticipates with incredible precision history before it happens. And the author of that package demonstrates the source of that package by availing himself of that unique facility. Only God knows the end from the beginning. Even the angels don't, but God does. And he takes advantage of that by writing history before it happens. So that's the first discovery. Now, once you have established that in your own studies, that the Bible has integrity, that it's designed, and the design is very, very clearly deliberate, we just come to a second discovery. Out of that, it establishes the identity of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what we're going to focus on tonight. How certain can we be that Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, is indeed the Messiah that was promised back in Eden? And so it, we discover that the Bible consists by just one categorization by J. Barton Payne, because other people would divide it differently, but he, he points to over 8,000 predictive verses, 8,362 by his cataloging which include over 1,800 specific predictions on over 700 different matters. Now, different scholars might 
partition that same information different ways, but this is just one well-known cataloging in uh, J. Barton Payne's Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. That's one way he categorized it. Clearly, the Bible, it's almost impossible to separate prophecies from the rest of it because even other things turn out to be prophetic the more you look at it. So it's a very elusive thing to try to catalog. Peter, in his second letter, draws on these issues and his own experience. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's his boast. Peter could say that. And when we hear Peter say that, we probably envy him somewhat. Boy, wouldn't you have liked to... He's going to refer to, by the way, the transfiguration specifically in Matthew 17. To have been on that hill. Peter, James, and John were there. And Jesus gets transfigured. And Moses and Elijah also show up. Peter was there and very impressed by that. And he alludes to that here, that he was an eyewitness of the majesty. But he's going to make a surprising rejoinder to that in the next verse. He says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that, that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. He's making a strange remark here. He has, he's making reference to something that's even better than being an eyewitness. You and I can't be an eyewitness. We have to rely on his record. But that's okay. You've got something that is more certain than actually having been there and seen it yourself. If that doesn't bother you, we're not listening carefully. That's a very assertive statement that we're going to try to demonstrate here this evening. William Thompson, known as Lord Calvin, he says, until we can measure a thing, we really know very little about it. So you all raised your hands. You believe the Bible is the word of God. Great. Why? That's a good. How sure are you? That is the word of God. Let me put it that way. We're going to talk about the Old Testament. All the references we're going to talk about tonight will be drawn from what we call the Old Testament, what the Hebrews call the Tanakh. Okay? And these Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek three centuries before the Gospel period. Gospel period, assuming it's about 30 AD, about 270 BC under Ptolemy Philadelphus. Uh, in Alexandria, which is one of the major intellectual capitals of, of the ancient world. He funded the, the uh, organization of 70 scholars, some say 72, but anyway, 70 scholars, to translate the Jewish Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Why? Because at that period, in the 3rd century B.C., the world was under the uh, rulership of the Greek Empire. And Alexander the Great enforced Greek a very precise, rigorous language. If you were Jewish in that culture, you probably didn't know Hebrew. Or you would use Hebrew the way a Catholic might use Latin for certain ceremonial purposes. It wasn't necessarily a comfortable facility you have. Most people in the world in those days spoke Greek. So there was a need for the Jewish believer to have a copy of his sacred text, in a language he had comfort with, namely Greek. And that's his response to that. They had 70 scholars, the best experts they could find, to translate the Hebrew texts into Greek. The work product that resulted from that is called the Septuagint translation. Septuagint just being a fancy word for 70. Now, the point we're going to dwell on tonight, 
within those, within the Old Testament, the Greek precise Old Testament, there are at least 300 prophecies which detail the coming Messiah, just in round terms, okay? Now, let me give you some examples of what I mean. And the examples I'm going to use are just the ones that are confirmed in the New Testament. We've discovered all kinds of additional prophecies in the Old Testament that aren't necessarily referenced in the New Testament. We're going to just focus on ones there. For example, we know that the Messiah was to be of David's family. And that genealogical background is all through the Old Testament. Clearly, the Messiah was to be of David's family. We also know from Genesis 3 and also confirmed by Isaiah and Isaiah 7 that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. That may surprise many. That that is laid out in the Old Testament for a number of reasons. He would be born in a specific place called Bethlehem. When the Magi come to Herod, they saw the star. Where is he to be born? Herod had his staff people check the records, and they came up with Micah 5.2. The Messiah, the king of Jews, is going to be born in Bethlehem. He would sojourn in Egypt. That's in Hosea. That uh, he would live in Galilee. In fact, specifically in Nazareth. These are all elements that you find in the Old Testament. He'd be announced by an Elijah-like herald. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3 deals with that. His arrival would occasion the massacre of Bethlehem's children. And that's predicted in Genesis 35 and bemoaned in Jeremiah 31. His coming would proclaim a jubilee to the world. His mission would include the Gentiles. That surprises many to realize that's predicted in the Old Testament. That's not the same thing as predicting the church, by the way. Paul will make that point in his, in his letter to the Ephesus. But his mission would include the Gentiles, as predicted in Isaiah. His ministry would include, among other things, healing. Isaiah 53 is just one of many examples. He would teach through parables. That was predicted in Isaiah and also Psalm 78. And he would be disbelieved and rejected by the rulers. The fact that when he arrives, he would be rejected by the leadership is the main topic in Isaiah. Isaiah 6, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 53. Let's talk about those that just that occurred in the last week of his life on earth. He would make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Zechariah 9.9, Psalm 118. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He would be like a smitten shepherd. In other words, when he's smitten, his sheep would be scattered. He would be given vinegar and gall to drink. Psalm 69 talks about that. They would cast lots for his garments. Psalm 22 details that. His side would be pierced. In fact, he, he, uh, Jesus says in Zechariah 12 that they will look upon me whom they pierced. When he, his second coming will be characterized by them looking upon whom they pierced. And yet, despite the brutal treatment of the crucifixion, not a bone would be broken. That was a specification required in Psalm 34, 20 and elsewhere. He would die among other malefactors. And he, his dying words were foretold in Psalm 22 and Psalm 31, he would be buried by a rich man. He would rise from the dead on the third day. And I've just given you a couple of cases there, but you're going to actually find that alluded to seven times in the Old Testament. And that's your exercise for those who are looking for something to research. Show me seven places where it predicts that it's the third day he would rise from the dead in the Old Testament. And also, uh, the Old Testament predicts that his, res- that his resurrection would be followed by the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And the big event in the, Jew, in the Jewish history is the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD where the temple was destroyed and so forth. So these are just some examples. There's over 300 of these things. What we're going to do tonight is just pick eight of them. I sometimes threaten audience, we're going to go in detail through those 300. But I won't do, obviously we don't want to, eight will suffice. We'll pick eight. And I'm going to pick, as you'll discover, eight of the simplest ones, the easiest ones. And you'll see why as we go forward. Let's take the first one. The Magi came to see Herod and said, we've seen a star, where is he that's to be born king of the Jews? You need to understand that wasn't three guys on camels. They came with military escort. They came from the Parthian Empire. And that was one an empire before whom even Rome trembled. The Parthian Empire withstood the Roman Empire for 300 years. They're very, these are serious people. But they arrive, and Herod, of course, is in a Roman appointee. He's appointed to be king of the Jews. He says, where is he that's going to be born king of the Jews? That's a put-down. That made Herod nervous. He had his staff people check out. What's the answer to the question? And they come back with Micah 5.2, where it reads, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now, we could spend the whole evening just unpacking that verse. The stuff that's hidden here is amazing, that Jesus was preexistent from the beginning, and so forth, and that he's going to be ruler in Israel. That's a whole subject to study. We're going to only extract one fact for our purposes tonight. Where is he to be born? A place called Bethlehem. To be born in Bethlehem, what is the probability of any person in the history that we're dealing with here, taking at random, fulfilling this? Well, the first question I ask, how many of you know someone that was born in Bethlehem? Can I see a show of hands? Let me try that again. How many of you know someone who was born in Bethlehem? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Okay. I got you. I got you. Waleed, I was going to lead to that. You bet. Waleed Shadow, that's another one. You now know two people. Because if you bet Waleed Shabbat, he's a terrific scholar and a very, very good friend. And he, But anyway, so we know, we know several people. But the question is, what's the probability of somebody you run into at random? being born in Bethlehem. Well, the town of Bethlehem has probably had a maximum population probably in the neighborhood of 7,000. But to deal in round numbers, I'll, I'll say 10,000, and let's assume that anyone, an average population on the planet Earth during history would be in the neighborhood of a billion. So we've got 10 to the 4th divided by 10 to the 9th. So we've got about one chance in 100,000. You probably would have to sample randomly 100,000 people before having a reasonable probability of having somebody born in Bethlehem. That's basically what this suggests. That's, that's probably a pretty good estimate. Let's take the second one. Reju oh, by the way, I should point out something else. We're going to stick with powers of 10 because it makes the math very simple. We're just going to round off in, 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 in powers of 10. So 10,000 is, is 10 to the 4th. 8 billion people is 10 to the 9th. So if you take 10 to the 4th, divide 10 to the 9th, you get 10 to the 5th and so forth. Okay. Let's take another one. Zechariah 9.9 announces as follows, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly of riding on an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. This is a quote from Zechariah 9.9 9 that is deliberately 
fulfilled by Jesus riding that donkey into Jerusalem on the day that we call the triumphal entry. What makes that time significant is that as they as he rides that donkey in there, the crowd is singing Psalm 118, which is commemorating this. The Pharisees are upset. Master, rebuke your disciples. Why are they upset? Whenever we as Gentiles might miss something, the Pharisees come to our rescue. When they're upset about something, it behooves us to find out what's bothering them. And what they're bothered by is they're singing Psalm 118 while he's riding that donkey, is declaring him as the Messiah of Israel. And they certainly assume that he doesn't want his followers to be blaspheming God. And he says, I tell you, if they would hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. You all know the story. It's all in Luke 19 if you want to get into that. But the question is here, how many people throughout history have presented themselves as a king to Jerusalem by riding a donkey? I know of none. But that's probably not a hard thing to do. So let's assume for our purposes, somebody may have done it. We just haven't got it recorded. If I say the probability of someone doing that is less than one in a hundred. Am I being generous? Probably more like one in a million. But we'll keep it simple. Say one in a hundred, I'm safe. Because that wouldn't be hard for someone to do, presumably. Let's take another one from Zechariah. Zechariah eleven twelve says, I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And th- th- what does this echo, of course? The betrayal of Judas, right? What did Judas betray him for? 30 pieces of silver. Okay. So how many people have been betrayed for precisely 30 pieces of silver? Well, I don't know. If I said something like one in a thousand, I'm being generous. We don't know of any, but there may have been unrecorded ones. So if I say the probability of somebody fulfilling that casually, that'd be one in a thousand, be a safe, a safe guess. Think of number four. The Lord said unto me, cast it under the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now this adds some details that I wanted to teach separately because many people may not fully appreciate what's going on here. You remember Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Very interesting thing for Judas to be saying. Who had indwelt Judas by this time? Satan. So by Satan's own voice, we hear Jesus pronounced innocent. Anyway, they said, what's that to us? You see to to that. So he cast down the piece of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. Okay. But they've got a problem. The chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. But you see, the chief priests had good accountants on staff. They couldn't put the money into the treasury because that was against the law. But what they could do, there's a loophole. They could prepay anticipated expenses with that money. And it was the duty of the temple when someone died that was a stranger that had no next of kin, the temple had to deal with the cost of burial and all of that. Every year there was probably some number, and they had to deal with that. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. So there was apparently a bargain deal nearby of a potter's field that was at a reduced price. So they took the silver and bought the potter's field because that gave them a place to bury strangers in. It was a burden they had to bear. 
they couldn't put the money in the treasury, but they could anticipate expenses that they know would be coming. So they took counsel, brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field is called the field of blood unto this day. But I want you to notice a few things about this passage. The price is 30 pieces of silver, okay. The location of the transaction occurs in the house of the Lord, that is in the temple, right? And who ends up with the money? The potter. Do you see all the, the details that are tucked away in that verse? So if I say, what's the chance of this happening by just randomness? If I said one, one in 10 million, I'd be generous. I'm going to say one in 100,000, I'm being pretty casual. Okay. Let's take the fifth one. One shall say to him, what are these wounds in thy hands? He should, and then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, when I was a teenager, I was in the habit of making little cards. When I came across a verse that I wanted to capture, remember, I'd make a little card. I'd put the verse on one side and the reference on the other. I'd always carry a few of these to learn them. And this one, I read that when I discovered this thing, well, gee, here's another Old Testament prophecy of the wounds in the hands. So I made a little card and put it in my little collection and tried to memorize it. But I remember vividly when I tried to memorize this, the more I tried to memorize it, it didn't make sense to me. And by the way, people say, why do you like the King James? I'm glad I did my memory work as a teenager in the King James because it's still around. If I had done the RSV, which is becoming, becoming fashionable back then, that's fallen by the wayside pretty much. Today, the big buzz is the New American Standard, probably a better translation in some respects. But the new one that out is the International Standard Version. That's one that we may start using with some of our studies. But the point is, most people overlook if you're going to do it, the scripture says, thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. You should do, do, be doing Bible memory work. Well, if you're going to do memory work, you want to do it in a version that is going to be around 20 or 30 years from now. You follow me? All the new ones will be, pre, be, be replaced by newer ones. That's fine. They're useful. Don't misunderstand me. But by, I go back to my foundational work, which is the King James. And, and there's, there's four or five words you have to learn that have changed meaning, but that's not a big deal. It's, it's half a dozen, it's not a big deal. But uh, the majesty is still unexcelled in my mind. And the good news, with every translation has its problems. The King James, they're all well-known and well-documented. So they're not, they don't become an obstacle. But uh, that's one of the reasons that I'm glad I did the King James, because it's still around. And you might think that over when you, in terms of your memory work. But anyways, I started to try to memorize this, once I'll say, and what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And the more I thought about it, I could not visualize this referring to some Roman soldiers driving spikes through his wrists on some 12 by 12s up there on top of a hill. That's not in the house of his friends. What's he talking about here? Well, when you get to John 20, you have this occasion where Jesus appeared to the disciples one evening. But Thomas was not with them. And the next day he said, boy, you should have been at the Bible study last night. Guess who showed up, you know? And he says, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Except I see that in his hands that print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and thrust my hand aside, I will not believe. In other words, Thomas, hearing about what happened the other night, was skeptical. Well, eight days later, again, the disciples were within and Thomas was with them this time. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Now, I understand this. This is a, a non-trivial thing. They're in a, they, they're in a six-sided space, a floor and a ceiling and four walls. And he entered and le left that without passing through the floor or ceiling or the four walls. 
And we, that's a hyperdimension issue. And he's not a ghost or a spirit or an image. He says, handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. He's tangible on the one hand. On the other hand, he's obviously in a dimensionality that we don't understand. But anyway, it happens again here. And then he said, he goes up to Thomas. He says, reach hither thy finger. Behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless but believing. Can you imagine Thomas's shock? First of all, he realized that Jesus had heard what he said a few days ago. He wasn't didn't visibly, but he knew he was he was he overheard. And so Thomas is on the spot. Thomas Anderson said unto him, and I always visualize him falling to his knees here, my Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And when I read this in John 20, I suddenly realized that passage in Zechariah, what hurt Christ was not the nails. What wounded Christ was Thomas's unbelief. That's why that verse has a special meaning to me. But in any case, how many people, though, taken at random, have been wounded in their hands in the house of their friends, whatever that might mean to you? And if I say one in a thousand, I'm being generous. It's probably much rarer than that. Okay. Number six. We have to take at least one or a couple from Isaiah 53. Where it describes, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He has brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, he, so he opened not his mouth. In other words, Jesus made no attempt to defend himself, even though he was innocent. How many prisoners accused of a capital crime, a death penalty situation, make no defense, even though they're innocent? Now, there have been some, I believe. There have been a few. But if I say less than one in a thousand, I think I'm being generous. How many people on death row, knowing they're innocent, make no protest? If I say one in a thousand, I'm being generous. It's probably far more rare than that. Number seven, another one for Isaiah 53. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Okay, how many people died with the, among the wicked and yet were buried with the rich that were not attorneys? Okay. Now I'm being a little flippant there. I had to work that in. One could argue that he was an attorney in sense he's because he's our defense counsel. But seriously, how many died among wicked and yet were buried with the rich? That, is a, that would seem to be a contradiction in terms. But again, if I just pick one in a thousand, I'm being generous. It's obviously more rare than that. Our last one, and then we'll wrap this up a little bit. In Psalm 22, there's many things we could pick, but this is the crispest of the bunch, probably. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. That's actually a very remarkable thing to see in the Psalms. Why? Because the official form of capital punishment in Israel was stoning. If you were deemed worthy of death, they stoned you. Crucifixion was invented 700 years after this was written. By, it was invented by the Persians and then widely adopted by the Romans. 700 years before the crucifixion was invented, that was written. How many people taken at random have died having their hands and feet pierced? What ratio of people? 
If I say less than one in 10,000, I think I'm being generous. Okay? Take all the people that have died. How many have their hands and feet pierced? Very few. Okay. What we've done by this little exercise is go through eight prophecies. Born in Bethlehem, riding a donkey, as a presenting king is riding a donkey, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the transaction occurring in the temple, the money ending up with a potter and all of that. We have wounds in his hands. We have no defense, though he's innocent. We, he died with the wicked in the grave with the rich. And, of course, he was crucified. Now, the question that faces us, okay, we've estimated probably rather conservatively a series of probabilities on each one of these. The challenge we have that's facing us now is what's the probability of a particular person in history fulfilling all eight of these? We've got a rough guess for each one individually. Okay. What's the chance of a particular person fulfilling all eight? Well, that's an exercise in what we call composite probabilities. And to get a grasp of this, let me give you a little exercise here. First of all, if we were teaching statistics in school, and I say, I, I want to get across the concept of one chance in a hundred. What do I mean by that? What I would probably do is have a bucket here with, say, a hundred silver dollars in it. I take one of the silver dollars and put some nail polish on it or something. And then I'd mix the, the hundred silver dollars up in such a way that it's thoroughly mixed. And I reach in there, and the chance of my arbitrarily picking one that has the the nail polish is one in a hundred. That gets across what we mean by one in a hundred as a random probability. Are we together so far? Okay. Let's assume we have a population here, and let's assume there's a hundred people here to make it simple. And let's assume that 60% of you are men and 40% of you are women. If I have someone blindfold and arbitrarily tap one of you on the shoulder, what's the probability that they're going to tap the shoulder of a female? Well, if you've got 60% male, 40% female, the probability is 40%, or way we'd say a probability of 0.4, four-tenths. with me so far? That's pretty straightforward. Let me change the problem and say, let's assume I have a population here that 60% of you are right-handed and 40% are left-handed. And for purposes of this exercise, let's assume those are randomly distributed. In other words, not, the, the probability of being right or left-handed is not affected by your gender, woman or male. Okay? So if a population is 60% right-handed and 40% left-handed, what's the probability, if I was blindfolded and I tapped one of you on the shoulder, that I got a left-handed person? Well, again, it would be point, a probability of 0.4 or 40%. We're together so far. Now, here's the thing that is not intuitive that I want to get across. What's the probability of selecting randomly a left-handed female? Well, I take the one distribution of left-handedness, and I take the other distribution of male and female, and I put those two together, and the part that has that in common is the product of those two. In other words, the product there... It's 0.4 times 0.4, which is 0.16. In other words, out of 100 people, there's 16 out of 100 that I would expect. That would be my expectation on a purely random basis. Are you with me so far? The point I want to get across, the way you combine composite probabilities, is take the product. You have one in a thousand, one in a thousand, the combination is one in a million.
reminds me of the two statisticians that were flying on a plane. And the one statistician was sweating and nervous and very upset and frightened. He says, I'm really, really nervous about a bombing on this plane. I've read the, so many news reports and so forth. His buddy says, don't worry, I've made a very careful mathematical analysis. And there's less than one chance in a thousand that there's a bomb aboard this airplane. His buddy says, that's, that, that's not too encouraging. That's still not that rare. No, he says, no, he says, you don't understand. If there's one chance in a thousand of a bomb being aboard this plane, there's one chance in a thousand squared, there's two bombs. In other words, a thousand times, that's one chance, one thousand times one thousand, which is one in a million. There's less than one chance in a million that there's two bombs aboard this plane. His buddy says, I don't see how that's so comforting. Well, I always bring my own bomb. Now, you're laughing because you realize that those are not unconditional, so that you puncture the model, obviously. That's why it's funny. But anyway, let's get back to these then. What's the probability? We've got these, ten, these eight prophecies to these. The reason I've used powers of ten, multiplying them is very simple. I just count the zeros. One in a hundred thousand times a hundred times one thousand times a hundred thousand times thousand 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 times ten thousand. Anyway, it turns out there's 28 zeros there. So I have one chance in 10 to the 28th of a person fulfilling all these. But it's not quite that simple because I've got to divide by the total population. And let's assume I assume for the, in this lifetime that we're talking about from Christ today, let's assume we add that all up, let's assume it's about 100 billion, 10 to the 11th. So I have to divide the 10 to the 28th by 10 to the 11th. So it's, I still have a very large number, 10 to the 17th. I can remember I sat on a board with Dr. Edward Teller, a famous scientist changed the course of history three times personally. And uh, we sat on a board together, and he and his sidekick were talking about 10 to the 17th, something or other. And I says, gee, that's interesting. I intrude myself in the conversation. He says, that's more than, that's about as many seconds as there are in the universe. They looked at me startled. What are you talking about? Well, you're the guys who try to convince me that the universe is 14, 15 billion years old. If you do the arithmetic, that's only 10 to the 17th seconds. They looked at me stunned. Didn't realize that. There's only 10 to the 17 seconds in the history of the universe by your reckoning. And uh, what interested me about that experience, they use these powers of 10 all the time. They're used to that. And they still didn't have a grasp to relate it. 10 to the 17 seconds is the history of the universe in seconds. That's a very big number, obviously. Now, what I want to do to get across how rare those eight prophecies are is I want to get a bucket of silver dollars, okay? I want to mark one of them, and but I need a bucket that will hold 10 to the 17th silver dollars. How many is that? That's a pretty big bucket. In fact, if I take the entire state of Texas and fill it with silver dollars two feet deep, I'll have approximately 10 to the 17th silver dollars. And so what we do is we mark one of them, and we mix them up so it has an equal chance of being anywhere, and we send one of you down into Texas, blindfolded, to reach down, and your chance of picking the one we marked is one chance in 10 to the 17th. That's pretty rare, isn't it? But we've only used eight of these so far. Let's, we have 300 to choose from. So let me take another eight. Take 16. Now, I'm not going to go through another eight prophecies. I have over 300 I can choose from. Now, the next eight that I might add to our list of eight are likely to be even more specific, more technical, which means they're even more rare. But I'm going to ignore that, and I'm going to presume, make a simplifying assumption here, 
that the next eight are no more specific than the first eight. They're obviously much, going to be much more specific, but uh, they're going to be less likely than the previous ones. But I'm not going to, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to assume no decrease in likelihoods of the next eight. So I got 10 to the 28 times 10 to the 28. That's 10 to the 56th. I t- subtract my 10 to the 11th to get my 10. Now I got 10 to the 45th. Well, again, let me use my, I need a bucket here that has 10 to the 45th silver dollars in it, right? Where, how big a bucket is it? The state of Texas isn't big enough. In fact, I need to make a ball of silver dollars that's got a radius of 30 times the distance of the earth to the sun. See, 10 to the 45th is a gigantic number. And that's probably underestimating the probabilities here, but let's leave that alone. Now, for this one, we need a space suit. We take our imaginary person, send him out there blindfolded, and he reaches into this ball 30 times. That's 30 astronomical units, 30 times. Anyway, and the chance of grabbing the one that's marked is one chance in 10 to the 45th. Okay, I'm going to do this only one more time. Instead of doubling, I'm going to triple it. We doubled it from 8 to 16. Now we'll triple it from 6 to 48. I got 300. I still have 300 to choose from. I got plenty to choose from. Again, I'm going to indulge in this fiction that the next group is not going to be more specific than the previous one. They're going to be actually far more technical, more narrow, but let's forget that. Now I have 6 times that, 10, 10 to the 28 times, all the way through. I now have 10 to the 168th power. And I got to subtract my 10 to the 11th out of that. Silver dollars won't work anymore. As I struggle to find a model here. Now, uh, there's a number of us that use this approach. It was originally popularized by Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, many, many years ago. And I'm really drawing on that approach. I made some corrections because there was some things that I felt needed correction. But anyway, silver dollars won't work here. I've got to think of another way to get across to you how big is 10 to the 157th power. Well, I'm going to make a ball of the smallest thing I can imagine, which is what, an atom? You probably have no grasp of how small an atom is, but it's probably the smallest thing as we can talk about. I'm going to make a ball of every atom in the universe. Now, it may surprise you to discover there's a widely accepted guess by scientists there's about 10 to the 66th atoms in the entire universe. Oh, really? Okay, well, I'm a long way from 10 to the 157th. If I imagine such a ball, I'm only at 10 to the 66th. Okay, I'll make such a ball for every atom in the universe. In other words, I'll do this 10 to the 66 times. Well, that's trying to promise. Now I'm up to 10 to the, uh, to the 132nd. I'm still a long way from 10 to the 157th. Suppose I do this exercise every second since the universe began. I'm going to repeat this exercise every second since the universe began. That gets me up to 10 to the 149. I'm still short of 10 to the 157. How much am I short? I'm short by 10 to the 8th. I have to do this 100 million times. This number is beyond our imagining. Stretches, stretch our imaginations as we might. Quantitatively, using every quantitative technique you can think of, there's no way you can get your mind around the probability of those 48 prophecies. And we've only dealt with 48 out of 300. What's the point of all of this? I am more certain that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah 
than I am of any other fact in the universe. I know of no other fact in the universe that I can be that certain of. I'm certain, that certain. And I've got quantitative evidence to prove it. And this is all accepted from hour 13, and we learned the Bible in 24 hours, so it may be familiar to many of you. And in, in making this tour de force here, I can't resist pointing out that I have skipped a number of them that by themselves do the job alone. One of these, of course, is this detailed genealogy. When you really study the complexity of that, it's breathtaking. And to discover that his genealogy is predicted in the book of Genesis. David's genealogy is there in, encrypted in chapter 38. That, that genealogy is appended to the book of Ruth. That genealogy is a masterpiece of labyrinth design between Matthew and Luke when you get in the New Testament. Incredible. But the one that probably is my capstone of all these is the specific prediction of the precise day that the Messiah would present himself as king to Jerusalem. Gabriel visited Daniel, gave him a mathematical prophecy that nailed it to the exact day. Gabriel told Daniel that from the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, he's giving his tomb while he's in captivity, but he knows it's about ending. From the commandment to restore the city of Jerusalem, not the temple, the city of Jerusalem, unto the Mashiach Nadid, the the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. And this is recorded in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, three centuries before the Gospel period. It's in black and white. Set aside who wrote Daniel and all that. We know that Daniel did because Jesus told us that, but set that aside. It's black and white in the Septuagint, where essentially Gabriel tells Daniel that there'll be 173,880 days from that commandment to the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. The decree of Archdiocese Longimanus was given on March 14, 445 B.C. There were four decrees, but three of them had to do with the temple. Only one had to do with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that's in Nehemiah chapter 2, and that's where we get all that. The triumphal entry is the one time, the only time, Jesus, during his ministry, allowed himself to be worshipped as a king. Several times in John 6 and elsewhere, he, he went, the enthusiasm wanted to get him to crown him. He said, no way, my hour has not yet come. And then one day, he not only permits it, he arranges it has a donkey set up with a password and so forth and rides that donkey on that day. And that's exactly, when you go through all the arithmetic and it's complicated, it turns out that Gabriel's margin for error was zero. He predicted the precise day that that occurred when you go through all that. That verse alone, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, is in a sense the most fantastic verse in my mind, epistemologically, in the Bible. So the point is, we establish the integrity of the package. We establish the identity of Jesus Christ. And then knowing who he is, he authenticates the package. That's not circular reasoning because the package is in 66 pieces. If that was one book, you'd say, well, that's circular reasoning. No, no, no. It's a package of 66 books penned by 40 different guys, over 40 different guys over a 1,700-year spread. No, this is a... This is a supernatural occurrence, and you have it in your laps. And the Bible is more available to you today than it's ever been on the planet Earth. Because you can go to the Greek or Hebrew without knowing Greek or Hebrew today. You can put your little computer cursor on any word, and up it'll pop, and it'll explain what that word was in the original, what a part of speech, and so forth. You can do, in 30 minutes on a computer, you can do what used to take a pastor six weeks of intense study the old-fashioned ways. The return of Christ to rule. You know, it's amazing how nine out of ten churches don't know this. 
They preach against it. Well, he's going to rule in our hearts. No, no, he's going to return to the earth. There are 1,800 references in the Old Testament. 17 books give prominence to that very event. In the New Testament, there's over 300 references. 23 to 27 books give prominence to the event. The rule of Christ on the earth is coming. He is alive. He is resurrected. He's returning to rule. For every prophecy of Christ's first coming, there were 300 of those, right? There are eight of his second coming, because it is a new beginning. So there is a challenge. You've been very polite watching this, but I love to close these things with a challenge. I'm going to put something on the screen. I'm doing it sincerely, but I want, I'm putting it up there to challenge you. I want you to notice this preposterous belief I'm putting up here. I believe that you and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time in all of history. And I'm including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. That's a preposterous statement. That you and I are moving into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about the gospel period. If you accept that, you flunk the course. I want you to challenge that. To challenge that, you've got to do two things. You've got to find out what the Bible says. You can't delegate that to somebody else. Don't, not because I said it or whoever. No, you've got to find out what the Bible says yourself. Your eternity depends on it. The second thing you got to do is you've got to find out what's going on. And you won't on the 6 o'clock news. We live in the age of deceit. The news has an agenda of its own. It takes pride in shaping appearance rather than informing them. That should be treason in a democracy. Their job is to inform not persuade. But uh, in any case, finding out what's really going on today is very feasible because there, there you've got to develop resources. The alternative press, uh, the Internet, there are resources beside the so-called lay-main media. So what's your action plan? You've sat through this little chit-chat very patiently, maybe taken a few notes. What's your action plan? Let me ask you, how many of you are saved? Can I see a show of hands? Why? Why did God save you? There are collective reasons for that, to magnify his name and so forth. But I'm going to suggest to you there's also an individual reason for each one of you. Ephesians 1.4 says, God had you on his mind when? Before the foundation of the world. You have a destiny. If you come to Christ, your life has been the subject of a miracle of his initiative. And when he did that, he had a purpose in mind. Now, when I said how many of you were saved, all the hands went up in here. How many of you know you're calling? See, that's about 20% maybe. Okay. You see, many people don't realize that you have a calling. And the great adventure in life is to discover what it is. And there won't be two alike. Every one of us in this room has a different calling. Some may be similar, some may not. But the point is, I wouldn't presume to even guess. But I can tell you the most, the biggest challenge in your life is to discover what has God called you to do? What supernatural gifts has he empowered you to have? Those are all scriptural issues. So what's your action plan? What's God calling you to do? One of the things used in an athletic term is to raise the bar in your personal walk. One year from today, will you be able to look back and say, gee, I made some progress? 
When 10 years go by, do you have one year's experience repeated 10 times? Or are you growing? Every one of us in this room is a work in progress. Me included. All of us need to be progressing. And most of us do it better if there's some kind of targeting here. In the 65 years I've been a Christian, invariably the place I see people grow is in small groups during the week studying the Word of God. Not a 45-minute sermon on a Sunday morning. That's great. I'm not knocking. It's a different issue altogether. I'm talking about studying during the week. Well, I read my Bible every day. That's devotional reading. I take that for granted. No, 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 no. I'm talking about serious study. And the, the place I see people grow is in a small group, 6 to 12 typically, in a home during the week, not studying so-and-so's latest bestseller. No, no, studying the Word of God. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now, if you can't find one study group, start one. You do not need to be a teacher to start a home group. You can invite a few friends over for coffee and donuts and pop a DVD into the player and discuss it and watch the Holy Spirit take over. You need to be a facilitator, make sure one person doesn't dominate, keep some order. But you don't have to teach, just let the discussion flow and watch the Holy Spirit at work, raising issues, responding to questions. And it'll, it's, one of the, it's one of the most exciting things you'll see because you'll see it supernaturally directed. But also, I think, suggest that you have a systematic program to really learn your Bible. That's not just devotional reading. I mean, to really learn your Bible. But whatever you do, respond to his calling now. With that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you that we can have such confidence in the extremes that you've gone to that we might have life. We thank you for that life in our Redeemer, our coming King. We do pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you would reignite in each of us a hunger and appetite for your word, that we each might grow in grace and the knowledge of our coming King. As we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservations whatsoever, we commit ourselves in your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Hamashiach, our Redeemer, our coming King indeed. Amen. God bless you. 